ultimately your personal brand is just your reputation. It's pretty simple. I think sometimes people worry about it too much or they overcomplicate it. But the real question is just, what is your reputation? What do people think about you? And is it what you want them to think about you? especially these days, if you want to be successful, you can't just leave it to chance. You can't just say, oh, you know, whatever, my work will speak for itself or, you know, oh, well, they'll figure it out. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Gary Vaynerchuk, and it is, you need to know your personal brand and stay true to it. Our guest today, Dory Clark, is one of the world's most respected thinkers on personal branding. She's a best-selling author, professor, coach, and consultant who helps people transform themselves into thought leaders in their area of expertise. Dory is the author of three books, has lectured at Duke, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, and has consulted with companies such as Google, Morgan Stanley, Microsoft, and many more. Dory, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you you teach at all these schools. Are, are, do you rotate? I do kind of rotate. I, I, live, uh, I live in New York City, and so I fly down to Duke about three times a year to teach for them. I actually just got back last night from teaching one of my programs for them called Communication for Leaders, and I teach for Columbia a couple of times a year as part of their advanced management program on personal branding. Very nice. So you, you, uh, you, you have a lot of credentials. Thank you. Oh, we, I even forgot. I teach in Russia, too. I teach for Skolkovo, which is, uh, which is a top business school in Russia. I teach personal branding uh, there, too. Uh, it must be very different than in the U.S. They have a simultaneous translator, which is a little, a little weird to get over, just seeing somebody you know, in the corner who's uh, speaking into an earphone and, and some of the people are listening through headsets. So you kind of have to learn how to, how to do it that way. But yeah, it actually is kind of amazing taking folks, you know, many of whom, I mean, you know, there's a lot of you know, mid-level uh, professionals. And, and so a lot of them really did grow up in a communist country. And for them to be taking a course on personal branding is sort of wild geopolitically. Yeah, very foreign. Well, you've had a wide range of experiences throughout your career, including politics, academia, and and now spending a lot of time coaching. How did you get your start? So my start actually came because my original plans just absolutely did not work out. And I had to, uh, I had to sort of improvise uh, to find something that would. So originally, I wanted to go into academia, and I got a master's degree, but then I ended up getting turned down for all the doctoral programs I applied to. So I had to sort of scramble and, and figure out another plan. So I became a journalist uh, because, you know, I thought, okay, it's sort of similar. I can read and write and talk about ideas, uh, which, you know, was, was not a bad idea at all. It was something I enjoyed, but I, I didn't really realize that the journalism industry was collapsing just as I was entering it. So I only did that pretty briefly. I did it for about a year and then I got laid off and just could not manage to find another job in journalism. So I ended up turning to politics, which is what I had covered as a journalist. And I had had some experience volunteering on political campaigns before. And so I became a political campaign spokesperson for a presidential race and then for a governor's race and 
you know, worked, worked in politics, unfortunately for a lot of candidates that kept losing. <laughs> so I had to have another plan. Uh, and then I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years. And eventually now, 13 years ago, I started my own business because I, I realized that being self-employed, being an entrepreneur could enable me to use all of the different skills that I had built uh, about writing and speaking and ideas and thinking about how do you communicate those ideas effectively. And I, I was finally able to bring them all together in one place. Interesting. So what presidential campaign was it? I worked for Howard Dean in the 2004 cycle. Oh, wow. I have not heard that name in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, n- nowadays he comes up and, you know, every, everybody says, wow, if only the worst thing our political leaders did was right. scream a little. <laughs> yeah. It's like different perspective through today's lens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what did you learn working on your first presidential campaign? I would say in general and then maybe more, more related to branding. Yeah. I mean, in general, I think I learned, I certainly learned the value of hard work. Um, sometimes people say that being an entrepreneur is, is challenging because, oh, you know, you're working all the time. And what I realized was that being an entrepreneur actually feels easy compared to working on a political campaign yeah. uh, because you do, you know, you have to get the work done, but you have a lot of liberty, you have a lot of autonomy about it. And if you, you know, you need to whatever, go to the dentist at two o'clock in the afternoon, you do it. Or if there's something really important for you, you can work around it. And it makes it so much more manageable, despite whatever the volume of work is. On a political campaign, I mean, it was, I think the only thing I can compare it to is, is possibly being in the military. We worked weekdays from, we had our, a standing uh, staff meeting every weekday at 8 a.m. And we would work until about nine or 10 at night. And on weekends, it was like, oh, our big break. Uh, We would work from nine to six on weekends. And so it was very exciting because Saturday night, you could finally go out and see a movie or something with your friends. But, you know, you were working seven days a week. There's, There's no labor laws or anything covering that. And it was just such high stress and such an intense pace that literally everything I've done in my life since then has seemed very, very easy in comparison. Better to do the harder thing first. Yeah, exactly could teach millennial parents that we, we, we might <laughs> we might be in a better situation today. Um, I'm curious in a campaign, is it working that those sort of hours? I mean, it's clearly not not for the money. I mean, is it do people believe that much in the candidate? Do they believe that much in the party? Do they just want to be part of the experience? I'm always curious of what causes people to to work at that sort of level in in environments where, you know, they don't have a lot to gain. Yeah, I think I think there there really are a lot of uh, true believers. I mean, if you're going to be working that hard for a particular candidate, you need to feel a sense of mission about it. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be worth it. The money was not great. All I was making four thousand dollars a month yeah. uh, as the New Hampshire communications director, and I was one of the senior people. Um, oh, you're you're in New Hampshire, so that was yeah. high stakes. It was very high stakes. Our field organizers were being paid $800 a month. And in fact, we, we got in trouble. The campaign got in trouble and uh, had to raise their salaries because we were actually paying them so little it turned out to be illegal. <laughs> so it was, you know, I mean, it's just like kind of poverty level wages for many people on campaigns. And, you know, of course, the hours are bonkers. So yeah, you're, you really feel like you're doing something important with your life. You feel like you're doing something important for the country. I think where it does get interesting 
is, uh, you know, I, I was working during a primary. And so then, of course, Dean did not get the Democratic nomination. Right. This is, I was going to ask this. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so John Kerry did that year. And a certain percentage of our staffers then go on to work in the campaign for the nominee. And at that point, it really does become about, okay, well, it's about the cause or causes that you're invested in, or it's about defeating the incumbent whom you presumably don't like. So it kind of rallies you. But it was interesting for me because with the stipulation that I'm sure John Kerry is actually a perfectly nice man, I had spent like nine months of my life as the spokesperson, like trashing John Kerry. I've always wondered this, right? Yeah, it's that's hard to, well, in today's lens, it seems like people shift their thinking on this <laughs> stuff daily, but yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and so I, I absolutely did not want to work for John Kerry. Like, I just, I, I like hated him. I'm just like, no, I cannot work for that man. Of course, I voted for him, but that's a different thing than working for somebody. And so I couldn't bring myself to do it, although other other people on the campaign certainly went on and did it. Uh, some of the more lucky or lucky slash farsighted of our staffers went on to work for Barack Obama in his Illinois Senate race. That yeah. turned out to be a good career move for them. I went back to Boston and I ran a nonprofit for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit random. It was somewhat of a, of a career deviation, one might say, but it turned out to be a valuable step for me in that it taught me a lot about entrepreneurship and I think enabled me to be able to have the tools to successfully launch my business two years later. So you launch your business two years later. It's perfect segue. You put up the flag and uh, what, what are you selling? So originally, you know, we, we often talk about pivots in business. And so, uh, so originally I thought that I would be a political consultant. I thought that was a a pretty plausible strategy because I, I had been doing high level politics and, uh, and I thought, okay, you know, I can do this freelance now. And it turned out that for whatever reason, you know, whatever point it was in the cycle or just sort of the luck of the draw in terms of my pitching initial clients, I was not getting a lot of pickup with political candidates, but I was getting a lot of inquiries from government agencies, from nonprofits, a little bit from businesses. And I was like, okay, you know, I mean, I, I, I was not dumb. And so I'm like, you know what, if you want to hire me, I am available. (laughs) And so I literally, I had cards, my first card said like Dory Clark, political consultant. And so I immediately went back and got new business cards that said Dory Clark, communications consultant. So I'm like, great, you know, I'm going to see who wants me and go there. And so I was basically doing marketing and and communications uh, consulting in the early days of my business. And today you're known as expert on on personal branding and self reinvention. So what was the process that drew you to that that subject? And how did you how'd you go from becoming an expert in politics and communication to to personal branding? Well, in some ways, there is a very direct through line in the sense that political communications in a lot of ways really is personal branding for the candidate writ large. That's, you know, very much what it is. It's, Oh, you know, what is their mission? What do they stand for? What's their message? How do you, how do you make sure that that is what gets conveyed rather than what their opponent wants you to think about them? So I think there's definitely a lot of similarities, but it was a little bit of a circuitous path to get there in the sense that the way that for the first number of years of my business that I was actually making money and being able to to have a business, I was doing 
enterprise level consulting. I mean, I was essentially doing marketing strategies, not for individuals, but for businesses. And so I had to kind of learn the methodology for that. But eventually in 2009, that was the year that I really got serious about wanting to kind of build my own brand through writing a book. I had always wanted to write a book just because it was kind of a personal bucket list goal, but I knew as well that it would be useful for me in terms of branding my business and hopefully attracting clients. And it turned out I I had a bunch of different ideas for books, but none of them were successful. You know, basically all the publishers were were like, well, you know, this is fine, but you're not famous enough. And so I, I got all of the proposals rejected. I had literally written three different book proposals. So yeah, you got good with rejection early in your career, it sounds like. Yes, yes. I was very well acquainted with it. Um, so I decided like, okay, all right. If they're telling me the problem is that I'm not famous enough or I'm not well-known enough, I guess I will just have to work on that. And so I started blogging, not out of any great desire to blog, but because I was like, well, I want a book and clearly this is what I have to do to get it. And so eventually, after a lot of uh, pushing, I was able to break into writing for the Harvard Business Review. And one of the pieces that I wrote for them early on was called How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand. And that piece became kind of popular and it caught the eye of the editors. And they asked me to expand it into a full-length magazine article for them. And at that point, once it got into the print edition, it caught the eye of some literary agents who reached out to me and said, oh, have you thought of turning this into a book? And of course, this is what I've been waiting for. (laughs) You're like, yes, I've thought a lot about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, it was like literally just like, it was a blog post, like whatever. But I'm like, you like this one? Great. That's my book. (laughs) And so literally, that's kind kind of how it happened was I discovered that people were interested in the concept of taking the marketing work that I had been doing with companies and applying it to individual professionals. And certainly it was, it was something that I felt capable of doing. I just hadn't really realized that there was a lot of interest in it. But once I saw it, I, I dove on it. And since then, personal branding and building your brand as a leader has been a cornerstone of what I write about and what I speak about. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites 
is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. So how do you define a personal brand? I mean, ultimately, your personal brand is just your reputation. It's pretty simple. I think sometimes people worry about it too much or they overcomplicate it. But the real question is just, what is your reputation? What do people think about you? And is it what you want them to think about you? Especially these days, if you want to be successful, you can't just leave it to chance. You can't just say, oh, you know, whatever, my work will speak for itself. Or, you know, oh, well, they'll figure it out. I mean, maybe if we all had more attention you know, to give, that would probably be true. But people don't have a lot of attention these days. They don't have a lot of bandwidth. And they're just frankly not paying very close attention to you. And so it is really important for us to take the lead in helping to guide other people's perceptions. And, you know, it doesn't mean anything weird or salesy or duplicitous. It just means being thoughtful about how we would like to be seen and then living our life strategically in accordance with that so that the right message gets through. But a lot of people don't do that. They don't take the time to do that or they don't know to do that. And I think it's a mistake and it's something that if you just put a little bit of thought into it can really be easily corrected. Do, do you think there's a misperception and I'll focus on sort of executives and senior leaders in this context, but in today's world and social media that they can have a, a different personal brand and sort of a company brand or they don't realize like given the public nature of everything they do, it is one and the same and they need to pay more attention to it. Well, I think what you're talking about kind of touches on two interesting issues, Bob. One is the idea of sort of the the personal versus the professional. And then the other is the individual professional brand versus the company brand Correct. and how all of those touch on each other. And so to take the former, you know, if we're talking personal versus professional, I think at this point, people are probably mostly aware that like, you know, look, yes, it's true. You can set your Facebook to friends only and things like that. We also know there is such a thing as screenshots, <laughs> you know, and so we have to be aware that anything that's shared online can spread. And so we need to be mindful of that. I, I think that, you know, ultimately it doesn't necessarily matter that much if there's certain things that you'd like to keep private. I mean, for instance, I at the course that I was just teaching at Duke this past week called Communication for Leaders, there was a gentleman in there who asked the question, he said, well, I keep my Instagram private. Are people going to look at that askance? You know, are, are they going to think that's weird? And I said to him, you know, no. A, a lot of people use Instagram or, you know, sometimes Facebook as a place where it's like, look, it's the pictures of the kids or whatever. Like people don't literally need to connect with you every single place. But what we need to be aware of is even if there's some things that you're keeping private or as private as these things can be, we do need to give them something to latch on to. I mean, I think it is a problem if people Google you and they literally can't find anything about you online. Like, it's like, okay, Mr. Witness Protection, like, who are you? Um, so it's important to have something up there that, that gives a sense of who you are, you know, LinkedIn profile or certain professional things so that people 
just get at least a sense. But when it comes to the individual brand versus the company brand, I think this is an interesting area where people don't always really fully appreciate it. But I like to think of it as kind of a, a Venn diagram, if you can picture you know, your junior high math with the, with the two overlapping circles. If your brand is so wildly different than your company's brand, it's probably not going to end well for you because people, outside people and also inside people, eventually you're going to say, wow, why does he even work here? Like he doesn't even have anything in common with what we're doing. But simultaneously, an an equally serious problem is if your brand literally is like two overlapping circles, if your brand is exactly what your company's is and nothing else. Then you seem inauthentic. You seem inauthentic or you seem like like a yes man. You know, it's like you're not bringing anything new to the table. Ideally, the strongest place to be for your personal brand is certainly needs to overlap with your company brand some so people can say, oh, yeah, well, they share values. They share some DNA. But that also you're bringing something distinct to the table that the company wouldn't have without you. That's what makes you valuable in the end. I'd love to get your opinion on LinkedIn. I've written on this a bit. It was one of my more popular articles from last year. You know, I think there's strong cases to be made. You know, Facebook's your personal profile, Instagram, obviously. I'm constantly amazed at the stuff that people comment or say on LinkedIn without recognition that their company name and title (laughs) is attached to it. And I understand they're their perceptions, but uh, it just seems to be completely ignorant of, of the association there, particularly when they're just negatively commenting on other people's posts. I mean, I had someone, and I know there's some cultural implications, but something I wrote, and this guy wrote kind of this terrible, rude, obnoxious reply, and I looked, and he's a vice president at Visa in France. <laughs> wow. But I, I've seen more of this than I would, I, I just, I don't know whether people forget that, like, their company, you know, if it's not their company, but that, you know, when they're posting, you know, it says Dory Clark, adjunct professor, you know, next to it. But I'm, LinkedIn seems to be the one that maybe has the most opportunity and the most problems for people in this personal and professional crossover. Yeah, I think that's right. And you, you raise a really interesting point. I, when I was actually down at Duke, I was meeting with one of my executive coaching clients and we were having a, kind of interesting conversation around this because she had posted an article on LinkedIn, which became really popular. It actually got, you know, I mean, this is sort of astoundingly viral. It got multiple millions of views. So it really, really traveled. But she was a little bit traumatized by it because it, you know, it was a, a topic related to millennials in the workplace, which of course is something that everybody has an opinion about. Yeah. And she on LinkedIn got a lot of, frankly, very hateful messages uh, insulting her. I mean, you know, she was not saying something wild, you know, but uh, it was just a lot of real vitriol just sort of trolling her. And she was saying, I don't even understand. Like, these are real people. This is not like a a YouTube avatar of like a kangaroo. Like, this is an actual person that can be traced. Like, how can they do this? And so I do think that people really kind of lose themselves sometimes. They just, they forget the context. And um, at a certain point, there's sort of a reckoning. I mean, the metaphorical example is, you know, everybody thought it was really like, oh, wow, how smart, how amazing, how innovative that we work can hold no property in all of these long-term leases 
and they're so smart. They're worth more than, you know, all these hotel companies and yet they don't own anything. Oh, let's give them a $47 billion valuation. And then at a certain point, you know, it was great and great and great and great until suddenly the jig is up and then wow, the jig is up. And I think it's very similar for a lot of professionals on LinkedIn. Like you can get away with being kind of, kind of snarky or, or rude or even hateful until someone notices, until, uh, until you're applying for that senior position that you really want, or you're being evaluated for a new position at a new company, or frankly, if you cross the line to the point where somebody takes the screenshot and sends it to your boss because they know your boss, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, guess you shouldn't have done that. Do you have any basic social media rules? <laughs> That you would <laughs> that you encourage as part of your personal branding teaching, just some like do's and don'ts that that are absolute. I mean, the vast majority of things on social media are really not hard. Like, I think there's a lot of people who sort of worry, like, oh, but what if I make a mistake or something like that? You know what? If you're a decent person, you're probably not going to make a mistake. Like, it's not really a mistake when somebody writes an article about millennials and you say, you know, you stupid bleep, you, you bleeping bleep bleep. Like, you know, I, I think just about any sensible person would understand that's not the move there. Yeah. I, I think that people really, frankly, worry too much about it. Now, of course, you know, the asterisk on this, if you're, you know, if you're in a regulated industry, there's a lot of regulations that your firm has. And so you need to be cognizant of that it just as a, a special situation. You know, I know, for instance, clients, you know, executive coaching clients have dealt with in the financial services industry have like, you know, sometimes their, their companies have like banks of pre-approved LinkedIn yeah. messages or something like that. But you know, they also can use LinkedIn, just not really in the broadcasting sense. LinkedIn is still a great tool for them in terms of sending personal messages to people or, you know, doing private outreach. But, you know, I think that the key thing is, number one, if you are a, a sensible person, probably don't worry as much as you may be worrying because of these sort of horror stories. Like, you know, you wouldn't do that. So I think it's probably okay. But I'll, I'll also say many people for fear of making a mistake or just because of inertia or it just it feels too overwhelming they go to the opposite extreme and they don't do anything and it is a missed opportunity because ultimately what social media is great for is ambient awareness you know we at this point in our lives you, know, you get to be a, a mid career professional you really have met or interacted with thousands of people, but you also can't reasonably keep an active touch with all of these people. It's just, it becomes too hard. But LinkedIn is fantastic because you're connected with them. If you are posting regularly and it's actually interesting stuff, you know, whether it's curating articles or sharing your perspective or something like that, if it's valuable, if it gets upvoted and people like it, then it's going to be on more people's feeds and they are scrolling through and they might not have talked to you for three years, but if they see, oh my God, look, Bob just released a new book. That's really cool. You know, they might buy the book. They might be reminded, oh, you know, Bob does speaking. I should bring him in. And it becomes very useful in that regard, which is a real professional value. So I know another topic that you focus on is, is reinvention from the personal brand. How do people get started when they want to reinvent themselves? And what are, what are some of the mistakes they might make in attempting to do that? Well, when it comes to, to reinvention, I would say that one mistake that people make is that if they're in the early stages of it, sometimes they are not properly clear with people about where they are in the process. And what I mean is if you are 
interest, you know, you know, you want to leave your current thing, but you're not quite sure what you want to go to. Sometimes people get hopped up on things, right? They're like, oh, Bob, I'm so excited. I'm going to start a new career as a travel writer. And you're like, oh, great, Dory, that sounds exciting. And so, you know, meanwhile, because you think that this is a definitive declaration, you might actually have some political chits you can use. You say, oh, you know what? I'm friends with a, with a travel editor of the New York Times. I should connect you guys. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, oftentimes the person will just say yes, thank you to the connection. But if that connection is made prematurely, if two weeks from now I'm like, oh, yeah, actually I'm not going to be a travel writer. Actually, I'm <laughs> going to open a yoga studio. You are going to be really mad at me because I essentially I have um, burned – uh, scarce political capital with you. And so it's fine to tell people you think you're going to be a travel writer, or you're exploring being a travel writer or whatever. But I, I think sometimes uh, people are a little definitive and they change their mind. And if you do that too many times, you look flighty. So it's important to just contextualize it for people. I think a second mistake that people make, which, you know, again, these things are easy to prevent if you are cognizant of them, is just understanding that it will take a while for it to sink in with folks that this is your new thing, right? Like they're, again, they're not paying necessarily that close attention to you if they're a casual acquaintance. And so they just literally might not remember that you're starting the practice as an executive coach or that you have, you know, bought the new business or whatever. And so that is actually why, again, social media can be so valuable because if they start to see a million posts from you about, oh, you know, blah, 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 this, you know, this new thing, it helps sink in over time. Oh, right. Dory did mention that. Oh yeah, she's doing that now. And it begins to get them in the mode of thinking of you in this new way. And, and especially if you are creating content around it, it also shows them that you are serious about the new idea. And this is not just a fly by night situation. And how about the situations where, you were a star, senior member of one of these things that did, you know, and you rode that to success, but that did turn south quickly. So let's go back to your, you know, example of WeWork. So senior executive working with the CEO there. Now the retrospective lens is what were you doing when he was doing all this stuff? <laughs> um, <laughs> how did you react to that? I, I, I know a couple of people who have found, you know, suddenly, particularly mid-career, you know, sort of an implosion of the place that they were at and, and that they use towards their credibility in, in that sort of reinvention or going back to the market, then trying to distance your, your personal brand from that. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There are a lot of professionals who face that circumstance. You know, certainly I did uh, to a certain extent, yeah. you know, working for Howard Dean, right? You know, it's not necessarily that people are holding me responsible, but for a long time, people were like, oh, you work for Howard Dean. Did you tell him to scream like that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's right. That was exactly the game plan. You got it. <laughs> and, you know, but it's much more serious, of course, if it's like, oh, you were a senior leader at Wells Fargo. Oh, right, exactly. Nice. Uh, you know, it, you know what's in people's heads. And so ultimately, at that point, you need, and this is something I talk about actually in my book, Reinventing You, I have a whole section about, you know, how do you overcome a, a kind of bad reputation? And so I talk about Michael Milken, um, who of course was the, the junk bond king and got in trouble with the law, had to pay a big fine, and for a long time was kind of a poster boy for 
misdeeds, but over the past 30 years has dramatically rehabilitated his reputation. And, you know, in his case, uh, a lot of it is through charitable work. It's through, you know, creating a philanthropic initiative, et cetera. But you really need to think through what is your strategy. And for somebody, you know, if you, let's say you were at a, a company that has become besmirched in the public imagination, you might have had nothing to do with it. But what do you do? I would say that you want to name the elephant in the room. Because otherwise, it's what everybody's going to be thinking, right? And so this is the opportunity where through your cover letter or through, you know, I mean, hopefully, of course, your best jobs are the ones that you get through referrals or, you know, through personal introductions and connections. But, you know, you want to say up front, look, you know, I'm coming from Wells Fargo or I'm coming from Boeing safety department or whatever it is. (laughs) The 737 certification team. Yeah, exactly. And you could say, look, I learned a lot from it. You know, you know, let me, let me tell you, this has been a kind of professionally traumatic experience and it has made me a better safety engineer. It's made me a better banker and here's what I learned from it. And here is how I can apply these new skills to make your organization even better. But you need to control the dialogue on it. Because otherwise, if you try to just avoid it, like, oh, no one will notice. uh, The whole time, they're just going to be thinking, wow, is this guy like guilty as sin? Like, why is he not saying anything? Yeah. So you just got to you got to own this like right up front. Yeah, you own it and you lean into it and you control the narrative around it. Understanding that that will probably end a few of the conversations, right? But I, I guess it's better to to know that up front than to know that at the end, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's uh, <laughs> be hard to get a job on the uh, Boeing from coming from the Boeing seven thirty seven eight or Mac certification team. I think right now. Yeah. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. 
While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. One of your books, uh, Stand Out, digs into the importance of thought leadership. Uh, I think it's really interesting, even for people who are just beginning to prove their value in an organization. And, and this, this is like a whole different view on, on personal brand. So how should people within organizations and, and, and at all levels you know, start to stand out as a, as a thought leader internally? Well, so ultimately, Bob, um, in Standout and uh, later developed in a course that I created called the Recognized Expert Course, I created a, a methodology. I really, after interviewing dozens and dozens of, uh, of top leaders and professionals, I discovered that there's three key ingredients in becoming a recognized expert, whether that is in your industry or whether that's in your company. And that is content creation, social proof, and your network. And what I mean by each of those things, I mean, content creation, I'm using a sort of broad term, but essentially it means that you have to share your ideas publicly because it's, you know, it's hard, of course, to be known as an expert if people don't know what you're thinking, if they don't know what your ideas are. So if you are trying to, you know, build a brand as a consultant or something, maybe that means writing a book or writing articles. If you're trying to build a brand inside a company, maybe it means participating on the company intranet where you're sharing tips. Maybe it means leading a lunch and learn. Maybe it means just speaking up in meetings. Maybe it means chairing a committee. But it's finding a way to publicly share your ideas so that other people know what you're thinking and what you stand for. Uh, social proof is a term borrowed from psychology that basically refers to, you know, what is your credibility that other people can see? How do you manifest that? And so, you know, certainly uh, it would be things, you know, like, again, if we're, if we're thinking about external folks, maybe it's, well, do you write for high profile publications or have you worked with certain clients that everybody's heard of or, or things like that? Internally, it might be, are you associated with projects that have been very successful? Or are you mentored by someone that is considered a top leader in the company? You know, all those things sort of redound to your credit and your credibility. And then finally, it's your network. Because, you know, knowing a lot of people, uh, having a strong network means that you have ambassadors that are supporting you even when you're not in the room which is really critical. So uh, trying to build relationships with people across the company so that they've heard of you, they know who you are, they know you do good work, and they will have your back when you are not present. So if, you were, if someone was 22 years old and they were just starting in an organization, which one of those would you encourage them to focus on first? Well, I think that one of the things that's most critical, if someone is literally just starting out in a company, I'd say focus on your network first, because odds are if you're 22, you may not have found it yet, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the thing you want to do, the thing you're good at. And so it is not at all unlikely that your first job is, you know, maybe in the direction of what you want, but not really. And so if you can make an effort 
to really, within the company, continue the process that you probably did in order to get the job, which is having informational interviews, meeting people, having coffee, but you keep doing it when you're in the company. That can be really valuable because the truth is you might start out in sales and decide, you know what, I really don't like this. This kind of is not for me, but I, I kind of like what they're doing over there in project management, or I think what they're doing over in human resources is really cool. And so it's not only a way for you to get to know what the rest of the company is doing, which is certainly valuable for you just in terms of your holistic perspective and being able to be better at your job, but you're also building a cadre of allies so that if it comes up that you decide, you know what, this this thing I'm doing is not for me, you have people that you can call to say, hey, look, you know, I really love working at this company, but I don't think this place is for me. Are there any openings or do you have advice for me about how I can break into HR? And those people will be willing to help you out. That is good advice. All right. Last question for you, Dory. And this can be, this is multivariant. So it could be singular or repeated. Uh, What is a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? Well, I think that the most important business decision, I really believe, that we make is who our romantic partner is, who our spouse is. And because, you know, I mean, obviously it's a pretty big life decision as well, but it also, you really can't do your job effectively if you don't have someone who is on the same team with you. So for me personally, I would say something that I, that I eventually did and eventually did right, but I dragged it out far too long was I was in a relationship with someone that was not really supportive of my career the way that I wanted to be doing it and that was just a terrible emotional struggle because I was constantly being pulled in two directions I couldn't you know it's hard enough to accomplish what you want professionally it's really hard if you're trying to do it and also having this undercurrent that's pulling you the other way and so eventually I, I ended the relationship but it was it was very hard and very painful so I think the mistake was just letting it drag on too long and not really taking it as seriously as I should have that some of the early signs that I saw were, were a warning that this was a problem that was not going to go away. And I don't want to get into the specifics, but I think in terms of it being helpful for people, just like characteristically, what were the sort of things that put the work, was it travel, was it, was it or just, you know, not believing in the work or what, what, what was kind of the core tension there? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, it's, it turns out I've, I've had uh, a couple of different relationships uh, <laughs> where, where this is sort of manifested in different ways. Uh, but I would say in one of them, I think travel was a big part of it. Yeah. She would say, like, you're living the best part of your life without me. And I'm like, I'm on a business trip. Like, like, you know, we, I mean, we took vacations and we did other things together, but it was just like a lot of guilt around yeah. having to travel for work. And then in another relationship, probably the place where it manifested the most was that, you know, again, as an entrepreneur, it is a rare situation where, you know, I think it's, you know, maybe different with some fields, but it's a pretty rare situation for me that I will have to change plans at the last minute because something arises. But when it does, it's usually pretty significant. And so when that happened, I was getting blowback where it was like, she really wanted me to grovel 
about right. it and like make it up to her. And like, you know, I believe in, you know, you know, like, oh, I'm so sorry. I know it's an inconvenience. You know, I know I said I would do this and, and now I can't. But it was sort of to the extent where it was like this federal crime if I had to do it. And I'm like, you know, I just, I need someone who has the level of understanding that like, I would only be doing this if this was really important. Like, I just need somebody to be like, it's okay, Dory. You know, like, we'll, we'll do it next week. You know, like, um, yeah. that was what I needed. I didn't need to be stressed about how it would be received at home. That is very fair. Well, Dory, what's the best place for people to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. On my website, I have more than 400 free articles that I've written for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review. And folks can access them at doryclark.com. And I'll also mention for people especially who are interested in personal branding, um, I have a resource, which is the uh, standout self-assessment. It is uh, 42 pages of, I think, uh, helpful questions to think about your brand and your best ideas that you can bring forward at work. And anybody who wants to get that can go to doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com slash join, J-O-I-N. 42 pages of questions. Yeah, there's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of homework. <laughs> it's hardcore, but you know, it's a hardcore world, man. <laughs> All right, sorry. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thanks so much, Bob. Take care. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dory and her books and her website on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Dory or any of the others, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and content and learn from it as well. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate and scroll down to the bottom to leave your review. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.